Good morning. We want to welcome you and uh, thank you for joining us this morning online as the message was given prior to this, that next week we will in fact be meeting live here in the church, and we look forward to that. Long time coming, we look forward to that. My name is Jerry Letourneau, and I am one of the elders here at Community Covenant Church. We are in our seventh week studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 4 and verses 17 to 32. As has been mentioned throughout this series, and is very typical for Paul's style of writing, he devotes the first part of his letter reminding his readers of the Christian doctrine that they had been taught. And in the first letter to the Ephesians here, in the first three chapters, Paul has emphasized all that is ours in Christ. Last week, Chris spoke to us about the unity that's ours in Christ. Paul places a strong emphasis in this letter, as he does throughout the New Testament, in our being in Christ. In fact, five times in chapter 1, he uses the words, in him. He does so again seven times in chapter 2, and then four times in chapter 3. That we are citizens of God's kingdom, that we're adopted into his family, and all of the blessings and the riches that belong to us as his children are ours because we are in Christ. This is Paul's emphasis in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And as Chris pointed out last week, beginning with chapter 4, Paul has kind of a therefore shift in his letter. In the first three chapters, he writes of who we are in Christ, but now he shifts to say that because these things are so, how should we then live? What Paul writes in these latter chapters, verses 4 through 6, would be without a foundation if it were not preceded by the doctrinal foundations that he laid out in chapters 1 to 3. That is, that all we are is solely because we are in Christ. And I want, I want to say that again. All that we are as members of God's kingdom, as his children, is solely because we are in Christ. In his letter, Paul makes a few references to the fact that he's not writing this as new information to his readers. They had been taught these things previously when Paul was with them. Ephesians is what's called an encyclical letter that was probably circulated among several of the churches in the Asia Minor region. In fact, Paul spent three years living in Ephesus where he taught in the afternoons and in the nights at what Acts refers to as the school of Tyrannus. So what Paul is writing in chapter 1 to 3 is a, a reminder for his readers. We all need constant reminders of the basic truths of who we are in Christ. We need these reminders to encourage us in who we are in Christ and to live the lives and do the works that he's called us to live. It's easy for us to be distracted away from these truths. Sadly, the busyness of life requires so much of our physical and our mental energy that it's easy to become distracted and to start to face the world apart from these great truths. So we have to constantly remind ourselves to be strengthened in the truths that are ours in the gospel. The gospel, 
Paul writes to the Romans, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And what is the gospel message? That all of us, because we were sinners, were alienated from God. Chris referred last week to Paul's writings in Romans that we were God's enemies, under the rule of Satan, who was a god of this world. We were separated from God in this life, and we were destined to be separated from him for all of eternity. But God, in his loving mercy, purposed from eternity past that he would make a provision for us to be reunited to him. He would provide a way to satisfy the justice that was demanded for our rebellion against him. The eternal Godhead chose to send the second person of the Trinity into the world to be born as a common man and that he, Jesus, would spend three years teaching about the kingdom of God. And at the culmination of those years, he would die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay the due penalties for the sins of every person that had ever lived. And God verified his satisfaction in this sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead three days later. And so for all who would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God would accept them into his kingdom to be members of his family and would send his spirit to live in and empower them. This is the message that the apostles preached throughout the book of Acts. Take some time, some, some time and look at how many times the apostles speak of Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection. And then they say, and we were eyewitnesses to these things. Our faith as Christians is based on actual historical events. In fact, Paul was a realist. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But a few verses onward, he says, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And Paul could say this because he too was an eyewitness to the risen Christ. For Paul and for all of us as well, our faith is rooted in events that actually occurred in human history. What happened in first century Palestine changed the course of human history. And because of these events, the lives of every person who was ever called Jesus Lord and Savior has also been changed forever. So it's very important for us to stop every now and then and to remind ourselves of these things because they are the very foundation and the source of strength for how we should live our lives. Or to paraphrase what Paul has written in Ephesians here, all of these things are so because you're in Christ. Therefore, your lifestyle should be reflective of God your Father. And even though the readers of this letter had been taught these truths in person by Paul, Paul uses the first three chapters of his letter to remind them of this gospel message again. That God's plan of salvation was conceived before the creation of the world. That we were objects of God's wrath, dead in transgressions and sins, subjects to the rule of the kingdom of disobedience. 
Because of his great love for us, God made us alive in Christ. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins through his blood. We were included into God's plan of salvation when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We are citizens of God's kingdom and members of his household. Through Christ and our faith in him, we can approach God in freedom and confidence. All things in heaven and earth have been brought together under the headship of Christ. God has raised us up and has seated us with Christ. His church is a body where God lives by his spirit. All within the first three chapters of Ephesians. And with this as the foundation, Paul begins chapter four, urging his readers to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And as Chris spoke last week, that we are united as one body in Christ. Which brings us to our text for today, which Rosalie read for us earlier, in a, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. After bringing to mind the truths of the Christian life, Paul shows the important role that knowing and thinking about these things has on our lives. Again, that what we know and what we think will impact how we live. In these verses, Paul says that those who are separated from the life of God are darkened in their understanding as a result of the futility of their thinking. By futility, Paul is implying a perverseness or a deprivation in their thinking that is brought about from a hardening of their hearts. And we could, spend, we could spend an entire message on what the Bible says about the hardening of someone's heart. There is a constant calling that God makes to every man. And the more that God's calling is rejected, the more callous the individual's heart grows. Until the time comes when the heart is hardened to the point that it is no longer capable of even hearing God's calling. In Hebrews, the writer says, today when you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as Israel did in the rebellion. Paul continues to point out how our thinking affects the way that we live. In verses 20 to 22, he says that, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self. So you see that in verse 20, he speaks of the way of life that you learned. In 21, he says, you heard of him and were taught in him. And again in 22, you were taught with regards to the form of a way of life to put off the old self. So it's in the knowing of the Christian truths that were laid out in chapters one to three, the doctrines of the Christian's faith that become the first steps to the foundation of how we should live. As Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
It's important then that these things are taught both in the church, Bible studies, small groups, and even in our homes to our children. We come now to the very core of, this, of, today, of, of, of today's text. Paul in 22 to 24 writes, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul here, as he does so many times in his writings, contrasts the past, where we were before conversion, and what we are now in Christ. He uses the terms old self and new self. Colossians 2 helps us to see this, where Paul writes and says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. Here Paul says that we were legally indebted to God because of our sinful lifestyle. In fact, he says that while that debt was being held against us, we were actually dead. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he made us alive in him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. We were dead, but God made us alive in Christ. Paul speaks of this in Romans 6, where he says that our baptism symbolizes that we died and were buried with Christ. But just as he was raised, so we too are raised to newness of life in his resurrection. This is extremely important for us to know. And, to, and then to have it shape how we live. It's crucial that we understand that Paul is saying here that we can better grasp what he's saying in the verses we're looking at this morning when in Paul, in verses 22 to 24 of Ephesians, says we are to put off your old self and then to put on the new, created after the likeness of God. What he's saying here would be like taking off an old ragged coat and the putting on of a brand new clean coat. But he's not saying that we, in our own human strength, are to put to death the old nature and then somehow to put on the new self by working to be godlike or Christ-like. The putting off of the old and the putting on of the new cannot be done by a self-effort nor by a, some kind of striving to imitate Christ. This has been done for us when Jesus took our sins and he nailed them to the cross and then rose from the dead to glory. See this again in Colossians. You were who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive. It's God who makes us alive. Again, from Romans 6, Paul says that the old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed so that we would no longer serve sin. The putting off of the old nature is a 
past tense act that was accomplished by Christ on our behalf. In verse 20, Paul wrote that they had come to know Christ and to be taught in these things. And now in verses 22 and 24, he's saying to live according to these truths. We're to shun that old dirty coat and instead we're to wear the new clean coat. To shun the old sinful lifestyle and instead through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to live in that new nature, that new man. Does this mean that our old sinful nature is somehow eliminated for our lives? Unfortunately, no. We'll never completely get rid of it in this lifetime. But we're not to live in it or to let it control us. The old dirty coat is accessible, but we're not to put it on any longer. Now imagine, if you would, um, for a moment, someone who's in prison and on death row. At his sentencing, the judge, as an act of mercy, pardons him and releases him. And he takes him and he places him into something like a university setting with all of his tuition, room and board, fully paid. And now he has the opportunity to capitalize on this newfound situation and make something new of, of, of the new life that has been granted to him. Neither the pardon nor the opportunity was of the prisoner's own doing. Both were provided to him through the efforts of someone else. The former prisoner now has a choice to either put aside his formal way of life, of corruption, and then instead to make a choice to make the very most that he can of the new life that's been given to him. He must choose to put off the old man and to put on the new. This is exactly what Paul is saying in all of these verses in Ephesians. In our position before God, we're alive to him through Christ. And so because of that, our daily walk should be reflective of that newness of life. Notice also in verse, what was in verse 23, Paul said, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Again, a reference to how what we know and what we think impacts who we are. Paul says to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In addition to putting off the old and to putting on the new, we're to have like a continuous renewal of how we view and understand reality, or what may be called our worldview. If the term is new to you, the worldview is how we interpret and understand the world around us, like a filter or a lens through which we see the world. Everyone, whether they realize it or not, has a worldview. Some people's worldviews are incoherent, like a smorgasbord of options, from natural to supernatural, religious, scientific, all of which may or may not actually align with one another. But our Christian worldview is more than just our private, personal viewpoint. It's a comprehensive life system that seeks to answer the very basic questions of life. Paul's doctrines, laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians, as well in other writings in the New Testament, lay out for us 
our Christian worldview. As we saw earlier, Paul said that if Christ is not raised, that our faith is in vain. The, our Christian worldview is not a collection of ideas that can individually be added to or removed. The Christian worldview stands or falls on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A Christian worldview holds that God created all that there is, that he has infused the laws of science, the laws of order and justice, as well as a moral code and a moral conscience into his creation. That mankind has rebelled against him, and yet he has provided a way of reconciliation in Christ. The Christian worldview encompasses all truths, religious, philosophical, and scientific. David Dockery is the chancellor of Trinity International University. He writes about, a world, what, about the Christian worldview. He says, a Christian worldview becomes a driving force in life, giving us a sense of God's plan and purpose for this world. Our identity is shaped by this worldview. We no longer see ourselves as alienated sinners. A Christian worldview is not escapism, but is an energizing motivation for godly and faithful thinking and living in the here and now. It also gives us confidence and hope for the future. In the midst of life's challenges and struggles, a Christian worldview helps to stabilize life, anchoring us to God's faithfulness and steadfastness. It's the truths of the Christian faith that should shape our worldview. Or as Paul writes in verses 23 and 24, that these truths would renew our minds so that we would put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so with, with all of this heavy theological foundation, Paul sets before his readers in verse 25, another therefore. And then he proceeds to list several commands to put off a behavior that was formerly theirs and instead to put on a Christ-like quality or character. Having gone from the theological, Paul now becomes very practical in his writing. As J. Vernon McGee used to say, where the shoe leather hits the street. Each of these commands that Paul gives has to do with a person-to-person -person relationship and the unity that should be ours in the body of Christ. In verse 25, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Paul compares community to that of the body. Last week, Chris gave the example of how all the parts of the leg coordinate with the brain and allows us to walk. Can you imagine if the senses passed along the wrong information to the brain? The body is healthy when it works in unison with each part. In verse 26, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Psalm 4, verse 4 says, be angry, but sin not. J. 
Jesus was angry when he made a whip and cleansed the temple. He was also angry in Mark 3 when the scribes and the Pharisees in the synagogue challenged him for wanting to heal the man with the shriveled hand. Anger is not necessarily bad. There is a righteous anger that is not sinful. It's an anger that rises up in us when we see irreverence towards God or injustice in hostility towards mankind or creation. The anger that Paul is condemning here as sinful is a selfish and uncontrolled anger. He also adds that we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. This is good advice not only in marriage but in all relationships. The longer we delay in bringing peace to a disagreement or a wrong that has been done, the less likely we will ever be in mending it. He goes on in 28 to say, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Notice that Paul just doesn't leave it at don't steal, but he instructs them to do something constructive so that they can share with those in need. Acts of charity became a very recognizable trait in the early church. Tertullian, who was a second century Christian, wrote, it is our care of the helpless and our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many opponents. Only look, they say, Look how they love one another. In verse 29, Paul condemns unwholesome truth, instead commanding the positive use of our speech in such a way that encourages others. And then Paul interrupts his list, and again he returns to focus on the new man that we are in Christ. He warns, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. The Amplified Bible says, and do not sadden or vex the Holy Spirit, but seek to please him. Paul wrote something similar in chapter 1, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. It's God's Spirit that lives in the believer, empowering us to live according to the ways of the new nature that's ours in Christ. When we fall back to the old ways we grieve the spirit that's working in us. Lastly, Paul concludes this morning's text in verses 31 and 32, saying, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here, bitterness means a long-standing resentment. Rage is an anger that flares up and then dies down. And the anger that he mentions here, however, is different from that of verse 26. This would be an anger that has become habitual. We, we may know people like that who always seem to be angry. And for some of us, this may be something that we too have to be aware of. But in contrast to this, Paul says to be compassionate to one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. If someone has wronged you, remember that Christ has already died and paid the penalty for that wrong. 
Are we holding on to that wrong in order to exact some further payment for the offense? Remember Jesus in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a great debt by his master, but then refused to forgive a very small debt that was owed to him. When the master found out, he threw the servant into the prison until the great debt was fully repaid. We have been forgiven a great debt by God. Therefore, we should likewise forgive others when we are offended. Our forgiveness towards others should be extravagant and without limits. There is a lot packed into the verses that we've looked at today. In fact, all of Paul's writings are very deep and profound. Remember that Paul was a very highly educated Jewish rabbi that had studied under one of the most recognized rabbis of his day. Paul referred to himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, an expert in the Old Testament and the Jewish laws and customs. Paul met Jesus face-to-face at his conversion. And then from what we learned from the book of Galatians, Paul didn't even receive the gospel message from the original apostles, but that he had received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. On top of that, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he was taken to the third heaven and saw and heard things that were too sacred to tell. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that there's a lot to comprehend when we read Paul's writings. Paul's reservoir was very, very deep. But even from the depths of what we've looked at today, there are some very general truths that we can take from the text. Number one, that we have security in Christ. Because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf, we have a secure position before God. If he is in us and we are in him, we are redeemed from our former circumstances of corruption and separation from God. And now we're sealed with his Holy Spirit. In this we can find rest with a confidence and a security about our eternal destiny. Secondly, in this new self, we have a source of strength the assurance that is ours because, because Christ has made us new and that the Spirit of God now lives in us becomes a source of strength for us to face the challenges of life. We keep this strength renewed by keeping a close fellowship with Christ. Our relationship with him does not hinge on the up and down emotions as we ride through the ups and downs and the successes and failures of life. And then, because of what Christ has done for us, we should work out what we are in Christ. We want our lives to show on the outside what we are on the inside. There will be slips and failures along the way, but for those who are truly in Christ, there will be an ever-increasing progression towards a Christ-like life. The way to assure we're continually growing in that progression is by knowing him better, 
through his word to us in the Bible, through prayer, through fellowship. We're commanded today in our text to put on this new self. Paul has provided a list of commands to put off certain behaviors and to put on others. There is a discipline and an effort on our part that's required to carry this out. But when Moses came down from the mountain to give God's commandments to the people of Israel, he descended to a people who were worshiping a golden calf. There was lightning and thunder in the mountain and smoke in the mountain, and the people were commanded to obey these commands and offer sacrifices, and when they failed, This was the old covenant between God and man. But in Christ, there is a new covenant. Christ's followers are not people who worship false gods. There is no thunder or mountains erupting with smoke. Instead, through the grace of God, we are his children, members of his kingdom, who are filled with his Holy Spirit. And with this, we are empowered to walk in the newness of life that is ours in Christ. Let me just say in, in closing before we pray that today's message is it's quite clear that this message is for those who are followers of Christ to put on the new man. And there may be some here or some listening today that have never made that decision. Maybe you've thought a lot about Christianity, Christianity, but have never really taken that step. And maybe for some, some of this may be new. Elaine and I were raised in a church where the gospel was never clearly explained. There were teachings about Jesus, the cross, resurrection, heaven and hell, but it was never clear enough so that we knew with certainty that we were God's children, members of his kingdom, and that we could be assured that we would be with him forever in heaven. You know, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, there are people who are available and ready to talk with you. And you can connect with someone by clicking the prayer request button on the lower right side of your screen. We hope that if you find yourself in that spot where you would like to speak with someone, that you would do so. Let's pray in closing. Our Father, very, very deep truths from the, from the pen of Paul. We pray, Lord, that you would find each one of us exactly where we are and that you would take these words and that you would do a work in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.